we'll be taking the Lord's Supper together today. And when we do that, let me just give a couple of kind of logistics to help us with that. The supper at North Wake is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus who's walking in fellowship with him. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here, but that will be a time for you to pray and think about what it means for you to follow Jesus. And um, so that, that being said, when you come to the table, we like to use this aisle and the wall aisles to approach the table so that we have less collisions and left, less of a traffic jam. So use these two to return to your seats. So come through this and the sidewalls and uh, we'll celebrate that together at the close of our time. So open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3 and uh, let me pray for our time there. Lord, now we address an area of great unbelief in our day and it seeps into our own souls. We doubt this is true. This, this promise of your return. Help us today. Reco- recover our faith, restore it, strengthen it. And let us live in light of this beautiful promise, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So Pastor Mark Mitchell writes about a time he spent at the airport. He says, I'm at the airport waiting. I arrived at 7.15 a.m., it's now 9.40, and my 8.38 flight was canceled and I'm waiting for an 11.30 a.m. liftoff on a new flight. He says, my waiting is the no fun kind of waiting. It's a waiting with uncertainty, for I have no guarantee I'm going to get out of here at 1130. I'm surrounded by people who look bored and aggravated. Waiting is always hard, he says. But when you don't know if what you're waiting for will even happen, you wonder if it's worth waiting at all. Then he adds this. He says, but the reason I'll be getting on a plane in the first place is all about another kind of waiting. My granddaughter is scheduled to be born in three days. We've been waiting for her for like nine months. She gave us a scare about a month ago, threatening an early arrival. Said this kind of waiting is hard too, but it's an expectant, joyful kind of waiting. We know when the time is right, she'll come. And so as Christians, we wait too for a coming. But it's a different promised coming. It's we wait for the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus to return to this earth for his people. Listen to what he said in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus has promised repeatedly that he will come again so that we can be with him forever. This morning, what kind of waiting is that for you? Is it the kind where you're really not sure it's ever gonna happen? Or is it an expectant, confident waiting that he surely is coming soon. You know, hoping for a thing that God's people have been waiting for for 2,000 years is a hard thing to do. It requires faith in the promises of God. And Peter, in 2 Peter 3, is writing to help us with that very thing. This is how it starts. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. 
In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So this is Peter's second letter. More importantly, it's likely his last letter. You remember back in the first chapter, he said, I, I think it's right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So Peter's probably aging and the, he can, the end is in sight. The Lord has told him that he's gonna leave this earth and so he is writing this kind of last testament to his people and he says trust the prophets predictions the old testament prophets and likely he has specifically in mind <clears throat> their prophecies concerning the day of the lord um, as as scripture calls it here's a sample from zephaniah the great day of the lord is near near and hastening fast the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. And the prophets <clears throat> again and again and again remind us, that day, it's coming. Peter says, remember their predictions. And remember the command of Jesus, he says, given to us through the apostles about how we live while we wait for that day. For instance, the apostle Paul, he writes this, these commands and instructions for us. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce godliness, ungodliness rather, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Peter says, remember the words of Jesus came through the apostles, remember the prophets, remember their predictions, remember the true words of God, especially he has at the forefront of his mind those words that talk about how we wait for the coming of Jesus. Okay. Here's why I think that's on the forefront of his mind. Look at the next verse in verse three. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So he says, scoffers are coming and they will come scoffing because that's what scoffers do. And this is a frequent alarm that the New Testament sounds. Um, Jude says it almost word for word with Peter. He says, 
You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. This is anchored in Jesus' teaching when he says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So these last days are to be marked by scoffers who come scoffing at the true words of God. And the last days, scholars tell us, began with the death and resurrection of Jesus and they run until his return, right? So Peter is writing to his churches during the last days, you and me, we're living in the last days when the Bible talks about the last days. He's talking about now. And these scoffers that Peter's concerned about that come during our days are following their own sinful desires. And he went off on an entire chapter last week on these teachers, right? He said they're prideful, they're involved in sensuality, and they're greedy. They follow their own desires. And the Apostle Paul gives a more detailed description of these last days scoffers. It's quite a list. Listen to how he describes them. 2 Timothy 3, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. It's, it's quite a list. And he says, avoid those kinds of people. And here is what those people will be saying in the last days. He says, um, they're going to follow their own sinful desires and they will say, in verse 4, where is the promise of Jesus coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as, as they were from the beginning of creation we can expect scoffers to scoff at the promised coming of Christ, not just long ago, but in our day. So for instance, um, DC was about to publish this comic on the second coming where Jesus is a sidekick to a superhero. Right? I doubt it was a very sincere thing. They got so much bad feedback from it, they canceled it and wouldn't publish it. Now, another publisher is picking it up. But it's, it's scoffing at the second coming. Consider this quote from an anonymous Baptist minister. He says, the second big truth is this. Though I'm not looking for some miraculous intervention from heaven, I very much believe that God is working in our world to transform our world. I am not waiting for Jesus to personally return in bodily form. Okay. He says, but I am convinced that the spiritual presence of the cosmic Christ is already here pervading this world and this universe. But the scripture teaches that Jesus rose bodily, he ascended bodily, and he will return bodily. We have a bodily kind of faith. So this is not just a back then kind of thing, right? We are living in the last days too, and people will come and scoff at this idea that Jesus is going to return. They assert, Peter says, that the world doesn't bear the marks of a God who intervenes in history in these radical ways. But before we look at how Peter responds to their mocking, let me just ask a quick question. Do you do what the scoffers do 
Do you scoff at the idea that Jesus is about to return? Not necessarily with your words like they did explicitly, but maybe by your unbelief? By the absence of this hope from your daily thoughts? Well, Peter goes on and responds to their accusation that God doesn't work this way. And he says, um, they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So he says, those who scoff at Jesus' return because things are always the same are overlooking a major trend in history and that is that God does intervene. He rebuts their idea that he has not. First he says God stepped in and made the world through water by his word. Secondly, he intervened in judgment when he, during Noah's day when he flooded the world with water by his word. And he said this pattern is gonna continue when God will intervene in the future to bring judgment and destruction upon the ungodly, but this time by fire. Okay. He says it's as, though, it's as though, you remember the TV dad who looked at his unruly son and said, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it? Okay, that's what Peter is saying. God made this world, he can and will end it. And these scoffers miss that connection between creation and flood and fire, the future judgment of God. God has and will intervene in history bringing judgment. And that the sad irony is that these false teachers who scoff at any idea of God intervening in judgment will themselves experience its full fury one day. So they miss how God has intervened in history. The scoffers miss that. Now he turns to us and says, there's one fact that we must not miss. Verse eight, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So Peter says, don't miss this. If, if you understand this, it will protect you from unbelief concerning Christ's return. The eternal God sees time differently than we do, which just makes sense. One writer says that the Lord does not reckon time as humans do. What seems agonizingly long to us is a whisker of time to him. Uh, Pastor John Orberg tells this story. He says an economist who read this passage was quite amazed and talked to God about it. Lord, is it true that a thousand years for us is like a minute to you? And the Lord said, yes. And the economist said, well, then a million dollars to us must be like one penny to you. And the Lord said, well, yes. And the economist said, well, will you give me one of those pennies? And the Lord said, all right, I will. Wait here a minute. See, it's, it's different to God. Pastor John Piper is helpful. He says, when Jesus comes back and stands on this earth to make it his own, he will say, it just seems like yesterday that I was here. 
And he says, oh people, do not be deceived. It's no argument against Christ's second coming that 2,000 years have passed since his departure. From God's experience of time, it's as though Christ arrived at his right hand the day before yesterday. Now, Peter goes on to explain why the delay um, in the next verse. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The delay is not unfaithfulness to his promise, Peter says. It is patience wrapped in mercy. That's why God is delaying the return of Jesus. He is waiting for us and our friends to come to faith and to repent. The fact that Peter here says that God wishes that no one should perish. When just a breath earlier in verse seven, he talked about the fact that the ungodly will perish. It can kind of make your head spin here. They're only like a verse or two apart. And... um, I don't want that to be a distraction for you. So I want you to know that people have thought that through. They're not mutually incompatible ideas. Some have suggested, though this is not my uh, perspective, but that people exercise their free will and resist God's love and so he's not able to rescue them as he desired. Perhaps a, a better understanding would be to recognize that in scripture, what God expresses as his desire, his heart, is not the same as his will that he has decreed, those things sometimes are different. Um, For instance, consider the cross as an evidence of these, what some scholars call two wills of God. Um, God does not desire evil to be done. He's opposed to sin. And yet, he decreed that Jesus should die on the cross by the sinful acts of men, like Judas' betrayal. So you have a God who's opposed to sin and yet decrees that sin should happen to bring about the death of his son. And so I, I explained that for you, um, not, so that, not so that you would be distracted by it, but so that, that you would be able to focus on what he's really saying here. Don't miss the forest for the trees. And the forest here is the patient love of God. Okay. Professor Tom Schreiner helps He's, he's a top drawer New Testament scholar and he says, better to live with the tension and mystery of the text than to swallow it up in a philosophical system that pretends to understand all of God's ways. God's patience and his love are not illusions, but neither do they remove his sovereignty. So don't miss the patient love of God here. He will wait thousands of years for people to come to faith in him. Thousands of years. There's an article on NPR that says we have become the impatient nation. And it describes us this way. It says we speed date, we eat fast food, we use the self-checkout lines in grocery stores, we try the one weekend diet, we pay extra for overnight shipping, we honk when the light turned green, we thrive or dive on quarterly earnings reports, we speak in half sentences, we start things but don't fin. We tweet stories in 140 characters or less, yet some tweets are too long. We cut corners. We take shortcuts. We text, TXT. 
We send new faces to Washington every two years, then vote the rascals out two years later. We clamor for more safety in the skies and complain when security takes too long. We can't take the time to drive to the video store or to wait for a DVD to arrive in the mail, so we order them on demand or stream them on the web. Mercifully, God is not an American, right? He's not like us. He is not impatient. The Bible talks about him being long-suffering with his people. He is willing to wait thousands of years for the people he loves to be drawn by the Spirit of God into faith in his Son. He waits, as Paul puts it in Romans 11, until the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the nations, have come into Christ. And so we have this little window. Well, God is patient to help bring the nations to faith in Christ. And that's why in the last year, we sent Caleb and Sarah to Catalonia, Spain, and Alec and Kaylee to Germany to work with the Kurds, and Glenn and Christy to Italy, and Marcus and Sarah Beth to that big fancy dinnerware country that has security concerns. We sent Keverly to Haiti, all of these in the past year, not to mention the tribe that are going to Denver and the unreached people in Denver that are there. Uh, Brandon Terry, today's his last day here worshiping with us. He loads the truck to join the Holloways and the Van Dusens in Denver this week. This is why we keep sending people we love. God is being patient. This is our window. And one day, that window is going to close in terrifying fashion which is what Peter describes next. He says, the day of the Lord, it will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So this he calls the day of the Lord. It's the period of time when Jesus returns as king and judge of all the earth. This is different than the last days. This is the day of the Lord, the day of God, and it will come like a thief. It will come unexpectedly. And he gets this idea from Jesus, who said, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Apostle Paul picks up on this language and he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Suddenly, unexpectedly, it will come. The day of the Lord, the return of Christ. In uh, the 1980s, National Ge Geographic ran some color photos and drawings of the swift and terrible destruction that wiped out the Roman city of, of Pompeii in 79 AD. Um, they had made some, some plaster casts of the things that they found, and Mount Vesuvius exploded volcanically, so sudden that the residents were killed while in their routine. Men and women were at the market. 
The rich were in their luxurious baths. Slaves were at toil. They died amid volcanic ash and superheated gases. Even family pets suffered the same quick and final fate. It takes little imagination to picture the panic of that day. The saddest part is that these people did not have to die. Scientists confirm what ancient Roman writers record. There had been weeks of rumblings and shakings preceding the actual explosion. Even an ominous ominous plume of smoke was clearly visible from the mountain days before the eruption. If only they'd been able to read and respond to Vesuvius' warnings. Peter says that the day of the Lord, it's coming and it'll come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a, roar, with a roar that heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter's language is straight out of the Old Testament, right? Straight out of the prophets. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 13 writes about an event in his day that foreshadows the, the ultimate day of the Lord. He says, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel and wrath, fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light and the sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake out of its place and the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Now, the language is severe, and the language of the destruction of our earth is vivid. And so scholars are debating about whether this means there will be a total destruction of our earth one day, and then a whole new earth made, or whether um, this earth will get an extreme home makeover kind of a thing, and it will be radically renewed and made new. Peter, in our, cha- our passage, uses the language of total destruction. But other places use the language of transformation and restoration. Like Romans 8 says, um, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and, ob- and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So there's language both of transformation and destruction that the scriptures use to describe this day. Um, and personally, I'm okay with either one. Let me, let me show you how I think about it. So imagine that this is our house living on this earth, right? This little shack. And so God comes along and says, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna tear that shack down and I'm gonna give you a totally new house. Perhaps this one. Um, Falling Waters by Frank Lloyd Wright, his most famous house. I would be okay with them bulldozing my old house and giving me a new house. I'm cool with that. Now, another, the other way to think about it, I'm okay with this as well, is it's an extreme home makeover that goes on. The house on the top is the original house, and the bottom is the same house. I don't know how, but it's the same house. And... I would be okay with that too if God's gonna come and so refine and renovate and make beautiful this world. Um, I'm, I'm good with that. Mark Lederbuch 
in one of his books called True North that deals with some of these issues from an environmental perspective, puts these ideas together and he cites a theologian named Herman Bavink and he says, when the day of the Lord arrives and the Lord Jesus Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead, the renewal of creation will follow the final judgment. Then according to the scripture, the present world will neither continue forever nor will it be destroyed and replaced by a totally new one. Instead, it will be cleansed of sin and recreated, reborn, renewed, made whole. So he blends those two ideas. Mark Lederbach goes on and says, one should not then think of eschatology so much as an escape from this world, but as a beautiful transformation and then proper flourishing of it. So here, Peter majors in the language of destruction because he has the false teachers and scoffers in his sights people whose lives were marked by pride and sensuality and greed and who denied the return of Christ. Peter's response to those who live for such things is simply this, it's all gonna burn. What you're living for, it's gonna burn. He goes on and says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. John Piper's helpful. He says that the implication of verse 11 is this. The only things that are gonna survive the fires of judgment on this earth are the expressions of holiness and godliness. He says, I saw that old black plaque with the silver chain and the white writing almost every day while I was growing up. It hung in our stairway in Greenville and now it hangs in our kitchen for our sons to see and it says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He says, that's the point of verse 11. Everything is going to be burned up but the fruits of holiness. A life lived for the world will go naked into judgment. A life lived for Christ will be laden with eternal riches. So Peter says, because the promise is sure, we are to live holy and godly lives as we wait for that day. Aware that it holds not only judgment for unbelief, but it also holds great reward and joy for those who do live holy and godly lives. The prophet Malachi, who closes out the Old Testament, puts both these ideas about the day of the Lord right next to each other in chapter four. He says, behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers doers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And so we live in light of that day. And Peter and the prophets and the apostles say, whatever sacrifice you make now is going to be worth it. But I wonder if our lack of expectant faith in the promised return of Christ makes us vulnerable to living like scoffers, that we're vulnerable to pride, that we're vulnerable to sexual immorality, we're vulnerable to greed because we don't cling to this hope. And then Peter says something really interesting when he talks about how we're supposed to live. Live lives of holiness and godliness, he says. In verse 12, waiting for 
and hastening the coming of the day of God. So we wait with expectant hope for that day, but by the way we live, we hasten its coming. We make it come sooner. There was a study that uh, the Pew Research people did of Americans who believe in the second coming, and two out of three Americans who believe in the second coming said we can have no influence on the day of Christ's return. But Peter here says we can hasten that day. How? The things that are all around this in the context say we, we do it by living lives of holiness and godliness, but also by helping bring to faith all those whom God is waiting to repent and believe. So in Matthew 24, Jesus says, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We do it by our praying. Again, the Lord's prayer helps us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. We're praying daily as we pray the Lord's prayer for his kingdom to come. And we expectantly wait for that day. I, let, I like the way Professor Douglas Moo puts it. He said, Christians must always reckon with the possibility that the return of Jesus can take place at any time. Imminence, defined biblically, means that the return of Christ and the culmination of history are always impending. The return of Christ is the next event in salvation history. It may be preceded by signs, but the signs come so shortly before the end or are themselves so ambiguous, they give no help in date setting. The Christian must always live in expectation that human history may suddenly come to an end. And Peter closes this section with his beautiful expression of hope. He says, according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness, no sin. There'll be no sorrow, there'll be no evil, there'll be no suffering, and it's so going to be worth it. The heavens and the earth made new. Isaiah prophesied about it. He said, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not even be remembered or come in mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Um, the scriptural descriptions of the new heaven and the new earth are mind-boggling. If you go to our heaven class that's being taught across the way, you're getting some of that. It's unbelievably awesome what's gonna happen. We will be glad and rejoice forever and what we miss in this life, we won't even remember, won't even call to mind, it will pale in comparison. So people often ask, well, will we get to do this in the new earth? Will we get to do this in heaven? Well, and I'm, my answer is that or better. That or better. That's what heaven and the new earth are gonna be like for us. The best life here or better. It'll be that or it'll be better. No more sorrow, no more suffering, no more evil. And no one speaks about heaven with more street cred in my mind than Johnny Erickson Tata. She's been a quadriplegic um, due to a diving accident for know, about four decades, three decades now, three or four decades. 
And she writes out of her suffering, she says, um, about heaven, she says, we get glimpses of it down here on earth, don't we? When your kid graduates from high school, when your first grandchild is born, when you watch your daughter walk across the stage to receive her college diploma or you look into the eyes of the one you love, you get glimpses of that eternal joy. Heart-bursting happiness, moments that seem timeless, that kind of joy happens so rarely here on earth, but it happens in glimpses. She goes, I have a mental snapshot of it at one of our um, Johnny and Friends Ministries family retreats. Our organization, she says, reaches out to people with disabilities worldwide. And part of what we do is hold family retreats in centers all over the country for moms and dads of handicapped children, as well as adults in wheelchairs. She says, Wednesday night of the family retreat was ice cream social time, and during the ice cream social, I powered my wheelchair next to this little red-haired girl named Nicole in her wheelchair. She was sitting next to Rachel, who was standing in her leg braces. The two of them were talking back and forth about the best flavors of Baskin-Robbins ice cream. And she says, after a couple of more comments about ice cream, I joined them, and we began a game of tag. But not just any game of tag. This was wheelchair tag. Before long, she says, a kid in a walker joined us with his sister, then a child with Down syndrome and her brother. Within minutes, we were weaving in and out of the legs of the adults, giggling and screaming because our foot pedals were bumping and bouncing off each other like bumper cars. We were having so much fun playing wheelchair tag, we lost track of time. And when the ice cream began to melt, John Warren, our retreat director, tried to herd all of us back to our cabins, but we were having a blast, we kids. So, what do you say to that? I say, amen, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, bring us the renewal that makes a world with no sorrow and no suffering and no evil. Come Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? So Lord, strengthen